and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I am your host, Justin, with you as usual to talk about all the things property related. Today, we're going to be summing up the results of the votes that happened last week. Those were mostly for the House and some Senate seats, but there were a whole lot of smaller initiatives on local ballots that are most interesting to us. Um, a milestone today, though, it is November 15th, and the demographers are saying that today we hit 8 billion people on the face of the planet. So 8 billion people, growing population just keeps getting bigger. All right, so let's go right into the first block of bills that we want to talk about, which is short-term rentals. I've talked about this before on here, and I think it's important to me for two reasons. One, I've managed a short-term rental before and had one. And then the other one is that this transition from short-term rental to long-term rental is an opportunity in the property management space. And being with a property management company, if you have a short-term rental and no longer are going to short-term rent it because of legal reasons or financial reasons, uh, let Poplar know and we can help you out in managing that property. Let's do a quick sum up of some of these. Um, in Portland, Maine, so not Portland, Oregon, but Portland, Maine, there were two bills actually. One was drafted by short-term rental owners themselves and it would have kept corporations and non-local owners out. So they were saying, okay, if you're saying we have too many short terms, let's get rid of corporate owners and non-local owners. Um, it would have kept uh, people from evicting tenants to turn the property into a short-term rental from a long-term for a while. Um, it got defeated. 55% uh, of Portland Mainers said no to that one. Uh, the other one on there was question B. Proposed by the Democratic Socialists of America, it would have limited short-term rentals in Portland to owner or tenant-occupied homes and two-unit buildings occupied by the owner, and it was also defeated with 55% of the vote. Uh, short-term rentals kind of focused on question B. It would have effectively shut down vacation rentals on cities' islands. Now, there's a weird piece in all of this for Portland, Maine, and that's that there are these uh, bunch of homes out on Portland's islands, and in those homes or in those, those island homes, they're mostly seasonal homes. And a big reason for that is that uh, you can't get water to them between October and April. So none of those homes can be long-term anyway. So they're these homes that are used as second homes, as vacation homes, summer retreats, kind of, you know, it's, it's a nice little getaway. And they're pretty popular on the short-term circuit too, because it's very much renting an island, which is cool as shit, right? That's, that's pretty neat. So they pop that out of there and said, nope. So now it's still up in the air how Portland is going to wrap its head around the short-term rental piece. But one of the things to notice here is that bit where there's always complications with which properties are getting layered in and who's supporting the bills. Okay. So both the ballot initiatives got beat there. The other one is up in Big Bear. Big Bear uh, defeated a ballot measure that would have capped short-term residential licenses to a total of 1,500. Uh, which is more than half of the town's current stock of vacation rentals. So there's there's a little bit less than 3,000 vacation rentals in Big Bear Lake. Um, I've stayed in those when I've gone and gone on Jeep trips up on John Bull and Gold Mountain up there, which is lovely. But we've capped it. Um, it's trying here to make the rent livable for people that live there, which is a, an understandable goal. It was campaign was funded by Residents for a Better Big Bear focused on how the proposal would affect the small town's economy. It would have reduced tourism spending and eliminated more than 2,000 jobs, according to that campaign. Um, people that were originally against Measure O were short-term rental owners and other businesses on tourism. But Measure O kind of 
really got pushed back because it really does affect the number of people that can come up there and spend money. And Big Bear is primarily a tourist economy. Uh, VRBO and cabin rentals have been there for a really long time. And I, in the 90s and early aughts, we'd go up and rent cabins there to go, to go skiing or to go spend some time in the snow. So that puts it in kind of this weird spot where it's, it is important to the economy. And so to try and totally knock them out is a bad idea, but there is also this, um, this pressure on rents for people that actually live there year round. So that one got defeated. La Quinta, California has a vacation rental ban, but it's still counting all the votes. It's super close in Southern California. Um, that one would ban all short-term rentals not occupied by a homeowner in areas of the city that have been zoned as exempt for short-term rentals. That was really kind of a funky and complicated one that we'll leave alone. Let's jump back into Colorado, which we talked about um, on the earlier uh, podcast last week on the election day. Um, in Centennial, Cal- Colorado, voters there defeated a 3.5% tax, so they got rid of a tax that would have hit short-term rentals and hotels. So it would have um, it would have raised revenue for the town. But at the same time, they're really worried with the recession notes that are in the air, what that would do to tourism itself. Grand Junction uh, defeated a lodging tax increase of 1% and a tax of 8% on short-term rentals. So also saying no, no new taxes there. Summit County, they approved a measure loving a countywide short-term rental lodging excise tax of 2%, effective January 1st. So they were actually successful at getting one through there. So there were a bunch of taxes approved on short-term rentals in Carbondale, Dolores County, Eagle County, like seven or eight passed in Colorado. And these little teeny short-term rental taxes just kind of add a surcharge onto the tourists that are coming through and use that money to help support the local infrastructure that supports those tourists as well. So this is not a bad thing. It's just kind of all over the place where the measures were kind of put on the ballot and kind of well explained to the voting public or where they were poorly explained to the voting public. End of the day, though, the short term rentals had kind of a mixed bag. There's a lot of um, taxes were kind of the only thing that went through. The caps were defeated and the changes to uh, how many short-term rentals and where short-term rentals could be were defeated. So there's still going to be push and pull there between the local economies and the uh, tourist economies. So for now, it looks like a lot of these are pretty okay. They're pretty safe for short-term rentals. Good news there. The taxes are going to go to fund the infrastructure. So kind of a mixed bag, but we'll see how that plays out in the coming months. Going back to Edmonds, Oklahoma, if you remember from last episode, I'll sum up if you weren't there. There's a piece of property in Edmond, Oklahoma, where the developer wanted to put in apartments. Um, the city did not, the city was fine with it. It was going to let it go through. And then people started agitating and it became a very NIMBY kind of space where they got a piece on the ballot that would have pushed back on the zoning. So that piece got on the ballot. The developer said, okay, I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to switch back to commercial. And it became this complication because if the ballot measure passed and it was rezoned for apartments, he'd have to go get it rezoned for commercial again. And so it dragged the whole thing out, made it complicated, tangled bit of spaghetti. The ballot question was called 3832. And it asked voters if they want to rezone land just north of Memorial Road for an apartment complex. And 
it kind of went along and then people even came out and said, you know, just, just vote. No, we just don't, we don't need to rezone it. It's going to go through. And what ended up happening is that this, uh, this ballot measure ended up, um, being defeated, which is what they wanted on the end. So kind of a fizzle to us to the end of it, but I'm really curious as to how the residents kind of worked through that thought process. If they were aware that they were voting against the apartment complex because they are now going to have commercial development there, or if they were voting no on the apartment complex because they still didn't want an apartment complex there. Like that's, I think that's an interesting thing to me to kind of go back and pull apart because it's very, it's a very compelling kind of a narrative back and forth where the pressure from the city is what got it back to being commercial, which was, or staying commercial, which was its original zoning. Um, the mentality there is interesting to me. I, I don't think we're going to get much more out of Edmund. We'll see if the reporters kind of go and do a um, post-mortem on this or talk to any of the council members that were going back and forth on supporting it. We'll see. We'll see if there's any more news out. But for now, commercial development north of uh, Memorial Road. So on the Ohio side of things, we're poking into Columbus. So we're getting into solutions for real estate's territory and talking about them without Mitch here. So I apologize, Mitch. We'll get you on here and we'll find out how this is going to affect uh, the Columbus market and possibly even the Cleveland market. But in, in Columbus, there was a $200 million bond package for affordable housing. A bunch of city officials said they need it help lower income residents, help, uh, help kind of put this together. What's, what's neat about Columbus and how this came out is I think the residents are recognizing that with the chip fab coming and with the current state of the economy, investing into these things is, is really beneficial for the entirety of the city as it continues to grow. So the results for this are drastically positive. Like there's, there's a whole bunch of bond measures that pass. There's a, a bond issue for health, safety, and infrastructure, 300 million recreation and parks, 200 million public service for work, like road service, trash pickup, 250 million. And then public utilities like the electric system, water, sanitary, storm sewer lines. And that's, that's half a billion dollars, 550 million. The yes votes, um, in parts of Columbus range from 62% to 71%. The affordable housing package picked up 68% of the vote, which is great. So there's this total of $1.5 billion bond package uh, that's going to go into Columbus to get it really ready for its increasing population. And the affordable housing piece is going to put $80 million towards affordable rental units, $50 million for affordable homeownership through the Central Ohio Community Land Trust, $40 million to preserve housing affordability in specific neighborhoods that have had prices skyrocketing. Uh, $30 million for programs and housing for people dealing with homeless. So they, they laid out ways on how to spend this money. They have a strategy. They have a plan. And I think they did a really good job in messaging before this, this vote came up. And the Columbus residents seem to have really kind of picked up on this and gone along with it. I think they're looking around and have a positivity. Now, I don't really know how this is going to land, but, you know... It, what the sentiment on the ground is clearly reflected in the vote and that they're for this, you know, the Intel project and the chip fab, the thousands of jobs coming there is putting a lot of pressure on this housing market. That's already kind of got a lot of pressure on it. So it's nice that they're looking forward and starting to build out that infrastructure and that support. So good job, Columbus. I, I approve not that you need mine or really care much, but I, I think that's a good direction for you guys. 
So turning to rent control, we talked a little bit about a couple of places that were doing rent control, eviction moratoriums, things like that. Um, Orange County in Florida, uh, by a wide margin, it's, it's 59 to 41 percent. Uh, they voted in favor of a rent control ordinance. So now in uh, Orange County, there's going to be a, a rent control limit that's tied to the inflation rate for the region. So they got that through, and that's going to keep people living in and around Disney World and being able to support Disney World and work there, which is great, without having to drive through that Orlando traffic to get in and out of there. They'll be able to uh, keep their homes and keep their workers close by, which actually I think is is very useful. Um, the other place that had rent control that we talked about was in Oakland, California. Oakland had 10 ballot measures. And it right now, so there's still some counting to do. So I, I will add that, that there may be some last minute shift in this stuff. But right now, it looks like everything in Oakland passed. So they had a bunch of stuff. They had some stuff for schools and college prep. Um, the infrastructure and affordable housing one, Measure U, is the one that we talked about. That was a bond. And it needed... Two thirds. It needed 66% to pass. It was an $850 million infrastructure bond for housing, roads, and more. And right now it's over 73%. So it looks like it's going to pass with the supermajority. And it's great because they're going to give $300 million for street repairs. There's going to be a whole bunch of money for um, affordable housing, $350 million. Uh, the previous infrastructure bond had $250 million. So it's, it's more, more and more money going towards affordable housing there. And they've also done some stuff around um, uh, Measure T as a business tax. And it, it looks like it's set to pass a Measure W pass, which is Oakland Rising. They did pass another one that's that's kind of cross-related to this, and that's a Measure X, which is a council term limits, which is kind of one of the things we hear talking about on the national level, and they've passed it at a very, very local level. So an interesting set of results across the country for landlords and property owners, homeowners, short-term rental advocates, and people that are looking for more municipal involvement in the housing market. So across the board, kind of a, a diverse bag of results, depending on where you live and what your kind of engagement with all this stuff is. If you're in one of those locations, I highly recommend looking through those results and kind of figuring out how they may affect you. And if you have any specific questions about them, you know, you can probably reach out to your local property manager or realtor and they'll have some really compelling information for you on that. So that sums up the election stuff that I want to talk about. The last story though, I do want to touch on because this is something that if you're one of the, the bigger players in this market, if you've got more than a million dollars in properties, if you've got multiple tax bases that you're working off of, I want to talk about one guy that's not directly involved in our industry, but is adjacent to it. And I want to talk about him because of the FTX FTT collapse that's happened over the last week. Now in that we've watched tens and tens of billions of dollars just kind of evaporate as Sam Bankman Freed's uh, FTT trading platform and his Alameda were kind of entangled and supporting each other on a house of cards. It was, it was basically a Ponzi scheme. But as we see all these um, Bitcoin, NFT, on the blockchain stuff come up, we're occasionally seeing them in relationship to housing. And this gets important. There's three pieces here I want to touch on. One is 
<clears throat> how regulated housing is. The second is how regulating finance is. And the third is how tax lands at the intersection of both of those. And any of these things can be a trip up for you because it gets so complicated with the regulations, lack of regulations, the riskiness of the ventures. So when we look at properties and we look at how they're currently regulated, there's a lot going on there. There's everything from the short-term rental stuff to the affordable housing stuff to rent control <clears throat> to FHA regulations and HUD regulations, as well as all the stuff with the mortgages and banking that support these properties. So different kind of mortgages can be for different properties. There's the first home, first time homeowners loan that you have less down in a, uh, a rate difference with mortgage insurance on it. You've got VA loans. You've got USDA loans that are available for certain parts of land. You have conventional mortgages, and then you have commercial mortgages too. So all these different loans have different requirements with them. The other side of that regulation, or I guess the regulation list, here's where we can kind of think about it and compare it that makes a lot of sense, is the last time, or the last time, hopefully the last time, we had a major collapse of the housing system was in the six, seven, eight kind of period when mortgage-backed securities crashed the global economy. And that was a, a, a weird way that banks found around some of these limitations on what kind of derivatives you could make and swap and sell. And so they were, they were packaging these subprime mortgages in as bigger, bigger chunks of securitized debt that they were kind of selling off and selling shares in to get the money back. Huge returns blew up the economy from this wealth extraction. So now we have Bitcoin and NFTs and all this stuff. And the reason it's interesting to look at what's happened recently with FTT and FTX is played out with one specific guy. Um, this guy's Michael Saylor. He was in DC. He had a bunch of money in Bitcoin. He blew apart um, a bunch of Georgetown penthouses and they made this giant 7,000 square foot residence. Um, he had a ton of money and a lot of his money came from running MicroStrategy for a while. So he did a lot of work to make MicroStrategy worth more than uh, when he came in. And so there's some of that, that money is, is due. I'm not throwing that away, <clears throat> but he definitely put a ton of money into Bitcoin and to stablecoin and to different kind of, uh, you know, Bitcoins and altcoins were a lot of where his money had been sunk for those massive returns. And he saw some of it. And for a while, he was worth uh, maybe as much as one and a half billion dollars. And then recently, <clears throat> it's kind of come down. But regardless of where his funding comes from and how this money was made, there's one key thing that I want to touch on. And this relates to how many of us involved in this don't necessarily have properties in the same state that we live in. Um, the downfall of Sailor has been that he lived in DC, bought a house in Florida and came claimed Florida residency when it came time for taxes. So this is a tax dodge story where he's specifically claiming tax basis in Florida because they don't have state income tax. Uh, DC has DC income tax. It's not a state, it's a district, but it does have an income tax. And so in order to shelter this, this is hundreds of millions of dollars in income that he has over the years, he's pretending he's living somewhere else. 
And not only that, but he's being audacious about it. He's got a 7,000 square foot house in DC that he's at all the time. It's where he parties at. And he's in Florida very little. You see things like this and people trying to control for it in places like Manhattan. Since New York City, so I guess the five boroughs, right? So it's all of them. But because there's an additional income tax in the five boroughs, the way they lodge it is you have to be in in the city for 186 days or something like that to count as having to pay income tax. So there's stories of millionaires and billionaires staying out of the city and being driven out of the city to make sure that they don't have their calendar count in such a way that they have to pay that income tax. That's not necessarily tax fraud. That's that's making sure that you're aligning with what the tax law is. It's a little bit edge case, but it's not illegal. Um, what Saylor did is absolutely illegal. He, But here's where the case kind of gets cool. Uh, DC has a law in the books um, that says that if you are a whistleblower for tax fraud, you can get a portion of the settlement back. So the people that actually blew the whistle on Saylor are a independently filed LLC that looks like it might have been insiders for MicroStrategy. At least it's somebody that knows an awful lot about his behavior. The filing is extremely robust. It tracks his private plane. It talks about where he was seen. Like it's it's very aggressive, all of that. Um, it looks like Saylor failed to pay at least $25 million in taxes, but he could owe more. D.C. law allows the city to collect triple the amount owed in damages along with interest fees and penalties. So they could make more than $100 million off of this case. The group that filed, though, is still blind. We don't really know um, who is there, uh, but it is amazing that it has um, you know, media, Facebook, and it has internal micro-strategy deliberations, tax information, and conversations from people that knew Sailor really well. And so this could this could be this this it'll be fun to watch just to see how this plays out in court because now DC has joined with this LLC to go after Sailor. What does this have to do with property owners? What does this have to do with investors? Well, what this has to do is directly related to the Inflation Reduction Act and laws like this that are on the books in DC. As we have increase in IRS agents and as we have more creative ways to kind of bring truth and justice out around taxes and tax avoidance, you got to be aware of what the tax laws are when they change. You've got to be up to it because there will be more more audits and more investigations brought to bear on people that are trying to get out of paying their duly owed taxes. Um, all those bills we were talking about earlier that just passed, those are done on the back of taxes. And they're looking at the current tax rolls and they're looking at the current dimension of uh, the people that live there to see what could be supported and what could be made. So they're really planning on this and trying to make it on the backs of people that can afford it, not not necessarily on the backs of people that can't afford it. This goes for schooling, this goes for roads, this goes for all the shared infrastructure that we have. So... Be aware of those things. And if you need help being aware of those things, again, this is the pivot where we get selfish and say that Poplar does this. Poplar keeps abreast of the tax law changes in the municipalities we run in. And that's something that can be difficult if you have a distributed portfolio. So let's keep an eye on Sailor in the DC case and see how that goes. Let's uh, keep an eye on the bond missions, see how they spend that money, make sure they spend it well. 
Um, I'm personally, I'm excited to see what they're doing, especially in Columbus, uh, and then what they do out in Oakland with that money as well towards affordable housing and infrastructure for the city. It's so important. Every little bit helps. So with that, thanks for voting last week. Everybody got out there. I appreciate it. I'm going to take full credit for the massive turnout because I'm sure that with our massive podcast listener base, we were the motivating factor. Kidding. Joke, joke, joke. But what I would like to say is I appreciate you guys coming in, tuning in and listening to me ramble on about what I think are important factors for our owners, residents, and investors and our future owners, residents, and investors. So with that, thank you very much. I hope you guys have a great rest of the day. Signing out from Poplar. You can find us at poplar.home slash POD, poplar.home slash POD if you are in need of property management services. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.